Welcome to Generational Wealth MD's podcast on financial freedom through investing in real estate. My name is Param Baladandapani. I'm a mom, radiologist, real estate investor, and mentor to others looking to start or scale their real estate portfolios. Thank you for being here today. The goal of this podcast is to provide you with inspiration, strategies, and insight so that you can stop trading your time for money and live life on your terms. If you love the episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. So I'm very excited to have with us today Thomas Castelli. Tom is with the real estate CPA, Brandon Hall and Thomas both. Um, they help real estate investors and a lot of physicians reduce their taxes, streamline accounting, make better financial decisions to grow their real estate portfolios. I was actually in the first cohort of uh, Brandon's tax strategy uh, foundation course. And uh, a lot of what I teach within the Creating Generational um, freedom program uh, and what I talk about a lot of that is from that uh, uh, from that course. Uh, Brandon and Tom are both very conservative uh, in you know in this they're they're very creative in their uh, tax strategies, but also very conservative. Just making sure you're always audit proofing yourself. Very detail oriented. I've loved working with them, and I'm really excited to have you with us here, uh, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, you guys know I always talk about how with real estate. Uh, your returns are multifold, right? We talk about cash flow, market appreciation, forced appreciation, debt pay down, really using leverage to amplify your returns, how real estate is one of your best hedges against inflation. Today, we're going to deep dive into the tax savings part of it. I'm so excited to have you here, Tom. Um, there are the real estate, um, you know, the tax benefits of investing in real estate that have always been there. But there are these advanced strategies that a lot of real estate investors have been tapping into since 2017 that has allowed a lot of high income earners, including physicians, to drastically reduce our taxable income in certain circumstances. So very excited to dive into all of that. Tom, maybe you want to go ahead and just start about um, the benefits, the overall, like, you know, the things that we've always had and um, how things have shifted since 2017. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think. Uh, it probably just to kind of give a quick overview and like everything we're talking about today. So this kind of all stems from the Tax Reform Act of 1986, right? So uh, before 1986, you were able to buy a rental property, whether it be long term or short term, uh, simply place in service, rent it out for to a tenant, and then you're able to use the non-cash expense called depreciation uh, to generate losses that can offset your active income. So say a, a job or a, an active business or pretty much any type of income, no questions asked. And what ended up happening was around that time, it became really controversial. So uh, Congress ended up implementing the Tax Reform Act of 1986. And that did a few things. It introduced uh, Section 469 to the tax code, which made all rental activities passive by default. And what that meant was, is that you can only use the losses from these passive activities against other sources of passive income, whether it be another rental activity or perhaps a passive business. And yeah, so it's the second thing it did is it made all businesses subject to a test called material participation. And if you met one of the material participation tests, then that business was active. Um, if you did not meet one of those tests, then it was passive. And that's kind of where the, full, the short-term rental uh, strategy comes into play. But that's pretty much what it did. So what all investors can do, um, what all real estate investors can do is use the losses from their rental activities to offset passive income from other rentals. So in other words, this allows you to not pay cash on your tax on your cash, excuse me, not pay tax on your cash flow. So you can have uh, uh, you could basically put money into your pocket, but show a loss for tax purposes. And that it, that is something that almost any real estate investor can take advantage of, which is fantastic. It also there's also strategies that allow you to use those losses to offset the gain on sale of a rental property, whether it be a syndicate or whether it be a, a property you own directly. Uh, and the good news is that's available to just about anybody. Uh, so, you know, it's very interesting that, I mean, to kind of put a little bow on what everybody could do is it's effectively allows you to increase your income without increasing your taxes, which means you could have a lower effective tax rate. Kind of give a quick example of maybe what that means is let's just say just for easy math, just say you made a hundred thousand dollars, right? And let's just say you paid $30,000 on that $100,000. Well, your effective tax rate would be 30%. That's what it would be. But now let's say that you were able to earn, I don't know, let's call it $20,000 from rental, from rental properties, and you paid no taxes on that rental income. 
Well, now you have $120,000 of income and you have $30,000 of tax. So again, example before you had 30,000, you had a 30% um, effective tax rate. Now you would have, I'm just going to do the math on it real quick. You would have now a 25% effective tax rate. And that's because you've increased your income without increasing your taxes. And that in a nutshell is one of the biggest benefits of investing in real estate is that is the ability to generate tax-free income. Here, what he just, the example he just gave is for anyone who's not tapping into those advanced tax strategies, real estate professional or short-term rental. If you're just investing in, in real estate and you're producing positive cash flow just because of depreciation, which is a paper loss that he was talking about, you're able to reduce your effective tax rate even if you aren't tapping into those advanced strategies, right? So, um, Tom, can we deep dive into what the passive actively loss limitations is, you know, what the cutoffs are and how people are offsetting it at this point? Right, right, right. So um, there's something called the special loss allowance underneath the tax code that says that if you're actively involved and actively involved simply means you're making management decisions. So if you own a rental property, you have a property manager on it. Uh, if you're giving the property manager a thumbs up to make a renovation or you know, a threshold that they should be, you know, checking with you before they make a repair request or something along those lines, that's active participation. And uh, if your income is your modified adjusted gross income, also known as MAGI, uh, for the sake of this conversation, you can just consider your your AGI. It's more or less the same. And um, if that's below $100,000, well, you could take up to $25,000 of these passive losses from your rental properties against your, your active or non-passive income. Uh, if your income is between 100 and 150, well, now that uh, deduction phases out $1 for every $2 of income you have above that $100,000 threshold. Yeah. So for example, if you were to make just say $125,000 of income, well, now your deduction is limited to $12,500 or $12,500. You don't get the full $25,000. Once you hit to $150,000 or above, that deduction is phased out completely and you don't get to deduct anything. And for a lot of high income earners, that's a problem because you can't take the loss against your rental activities. So that's kind of the limits right there. Yeah. Uh, now, there are ways around those limits. There's a handful of ways. Uh, the first way is the real estate professional status. And the real estate professional status was put into place around, I think, believe 1994. So from 1986 to 1994, if you didn't use a special loss allowance, there was no way for anybody to take losses from their rental activities against their active income. And just basically, long story short, a lot of lobbying in Congress, the real estate industry eventually got the real estate professional status into the tax code. And what the real estate professional status the, uh, status allows you to do is to take losses from your rental activities um, against your active or you know active you know W2 or business income. And now to qualify as a real estate professional, what you need to do is you need to spend more than 750 hours in a real property trader business and more than 50% of your total working time. And that's the one that, that trips a lot of people up and stops them, prevents them from being able to use the strategies because it's hard to work a full-time job or run a full-time business uh, and still work more than 50% of your time in a real property trader business. Unless, of course, your business is a real property trader business. So that's how you qualify. Now, there's 11 real property trader businesses out there. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but basically fix and flipping, wholesaling, uh, maybe you're a real estate agent or broker, you're construction, you develop properties, or you're in rental activities, maybe you're a property manager. Those are all real property. General companies. contractors, Tom, do they fall under that category? General contractors generally fall under the construction bracket. So yeah, they would be considered in a real property share business. Um, so yeah, those are the real property trades businesses that can help you get to the 750 hours. Uh, but there's also another step. You also must be able to prove that you materially participated in your rental activity. So for example, say that I was a real estate agent and I may, and I was, that was my full-time job. I'm easily going to hit the 750. Um, but let's just say I have a handful of rental properties and I never do anything with them. I have a property manager. They do all the work. Um, unfortunately, I'll qualify as a real estate professional, but I won't be able to take the losses against my rental activity. Against, uh, excuse me, use the losses from my rental activities against my active income. Uh, so, in order to do that, I would need to meet one of seven tests on my rental activities, and uh, we're going to go through all seven. There's really only three that really are matter to most investors, and that's you spend more than 500 hours on your rental activities, or you do substantially everything yourself, which pretty much 
pretty much just means you're a one-person show. You do just about everything, and maybe you have a handyman come and fix something or someone help you out once or twice throughout the year, but you're, you're a one-person band. And then the third one is you spend more than 100 hours on the activity, and no one other individual spends more time than you. So that means that you could have more people help you out as long as you're spending more than 100 hours and no one's spending more time than you. Um, now, if you if you're only... If you're going for this status, the real estate professional status, and your only activity, your only real property trader business is your rental properties, and if you make that 750 hours and more than half your total working time, you're going to already have met that 500-hour test on your way there. So you, you're you fine. You check the box. But again, if you're, you're a real estate agent, you're in construction, you're you're in another real property trader business that's not a rental business, you still need to make sure you're meeting one of those three tests I just mentioned on your rental activities your, uh, yourself. Uh, one more thing I want to throw in there, actually if two two or three more things, the real estate professional status <laughs> I think is important to note. Uh, the first thing is that uh, your spouse can qualify as a real estate professional. So maybe you work full-time and your spouse works part-time or doesn't work at all, and they want to get involved in the real estate business. Well, if they can meet that, that 750 hour and more than half their total working time requirement, then you both get the benefits if you're married filing jointly uh, of the real estate professional status. And we see that a lot. It's quite common that people do that. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind there. Also, in order for your hours to count towards the 750, you must own at least 5%, uh, have a 5% ownership interest in whatever business that you're looking to qualify for. So if you are, you know, if you work for a property management firm, for example, um, and you know, you're, you're an employee there, you have W2, um, income, for example, and you don't own 5% of the company or more then your hours will not count towards that 750, despite the fact that it is a real property trader business. So you have to have an ownership interest of at least 5%, something just to, to note in there. And then, uh, that, yeah, those are pretty much the, the biggest, okay. Then the last thing I wanted to say that is that if you, if you have multiple rental properties, you would have to meet one of those three material participation tests on each one of those properties, unless you make a grouping election uh, that's found under Section 469-9G, uh, which is known as the become known as the Dash Nine Grouping Election. And what that does is allows you to treat all your rental properties as one activity, so that you only have to meet one of those three material participation tests mm -hmm. on one of your rental properties. I excuse me, yeah, across, across all of them and not across each one of them individually. So, and if you have past losses from syndications, you could group that into it also. Right? right, right. So you can group them together using that dash nine election. However, if you're going to take the losses from the syndications against your active income, you there's the test you're going to have to meet is that 500 hour test on your own portfolio that you own. And the reason for that is that you're not going to be able to use substantially all tests because the syndicators, the sponsors, they're doing a lot of work. Yeah. And that means that you're not doing substantially everything anymore. And B, uh, you're in most cases, the hundred hours and no one else spends more time to use not going to work for two reasons. The first reason is you're probably not going to be able to accurately track their time. So practically speaking, this is probably not going to work. And B, they're probably spending more time than you anyway. So um, if you're going to be using that test, you're going to have to use the 500-hour test, meaning you have to spend more than 500 hours managing your own rental portfolio in order to have those uh, those losses from those syndicates. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Tom. That was like so elaborate and there's so much to unpack over there. So I'm going to go step by step. So for those of you, um, you're here with us, um, 750 hours roughly translates to around 15 hours a week or more that for you to be able uh, in real estate, for you to be able to qualify as a real estate professional. So a few questions that I keep getting here often uh, along those lines, uh, Tom, are what if I work point uh, 0.8 FT? So what if I work four days a week in medicine and I still legitimately spend more time in real estate? Um, how does that work? And what is my audit risk? So uh, how many properties do I need to have if I'm working, say, three days for me to qualify or questions we get all the time? So do you want to take that? Yeah. Yeah. So it comes down to hours, right? So if you're able to substantiate, you, usually we recommend using a time log. Um, so if you're able to substantiate that you spent more, more than 750 and more than half your total working time in real estate, and you had another job or you operate another business, that's fine. You're just going to need to be able to substantiate that. So that means you probably need to track the time you're spending in the other business or in the other job, because the IRS is going to automatically assume if you have, especially if you have a high paying job that you're spending uh, more than half your total working time in that job. And th th what that means is where that business, and that becomes your, 
you have to overcome that presumption. So the, uh, the onus is on you to, to do that. So you need to make sure that you have the time log for the Bureau of Real Estate Activities. And you also have some uh, reasonable way to ascertain the time you're spending in your other business so that if you are ever audited, you can clearly say, hey, look, here's my time log. Here's my supporting evidence for the real estate professional status to show that I met those requirements. And also, here's the time I spent in my job or my other business to show that it was more time in real estate than in this other activities. Now, you know, and I'd go as far as even to say that you're going to want to have the time log is definitely one thing, but you may also want to have in your back pocket um, some someone you could bring in if you are ever audited, like for testimony. Like, okay, here's here's my partner in my business, or here's you know my 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 supervisor or my uh, one of my colleagues in my business who could attest to the time that I'm spending in that other activity. Um, so you could make your case stronger because again, the IRS will assume that you didn't do it, and you have to overcome that burden. Yeah, love that. Now, so many of you are listening to this and thinking, I don't really want to cut back in medicine. Maybe I don't. I cannot at this point. My spouse cannot. We're working full time. Um, and I don't think we're ever going to be able to, we don't want to spend more than 15 hours a week in real estate throughout the entire year. Can we talk, Tom, about uh, the, ta- the short-term rental tax strategy that a lot of high-income people have been tapping into when they find themselves in the position where at least for the foreseeable future, they don't see themselves going part-time or being able to meet real estate professional. Um, right. So what, what's the what's the other um, thing that a lot of high-income earners have been using? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of just tying it back to what I mentioned before, all rental activities are passive underneath uh, Section 469. Uh, however, there's exceptions to that definition of rental activities. And one of the exceptions or two of the exceptions that are most common we see in the short-term rental space are going to be uh, the average stay of the average customer use of the property is seven days or less. So this just typically means that when you add up all of the stays you had throughout the year and you divide them by the total amount of days that people stayed, it was less than seven. You meet that, it's not a rental activity underneath tax code. It becomes a business activity, a regular business activity. And I'll get into that more in a second. The second exception that's relevant to most people in the short-term rental space is going to be the average stay is 30 days or less and substantial services are provided to the guests while they're there. Uh, substantial services are things that you normally find in a hotel. Daily cleaning um, while they're there, daily breakfast, uh, vouchers um, uh, to like you know, ride vouchers or, or vouchers to local communities, guided tours, um, pretty much concierge, ser- concierge services. Anything that you would really find in a hotel, that's usually going to be considered substantial services. And if you meet that criteria, it's also not going to be considered a rental activity. And again, it makes it a regular business activity. And that means that you do not have to qualify as a real estate professional to turn the losses non-passive. So you bypass that 750 hour and more than half your total work time requirement. And you go directly to the material participation tests. Same three tests I mentioned before are going to be relevant here. You spend more than 500 hours on the activity or you, or, or you spend, uh, you, excuse me, you do substantially everything yourself, um, or you spend more than a hundred hours and no one else spends more time than you. And, uh, in, in the short-term rental space, that hundred hour test and more than anybody and, and more than anybody else, that is, uh, probably the most common test. And the reason for that is the 500 hour test. If you have one or even maybe two short-term rentals, it's going to be very challenging to meet that 500 hours. At least in my experience working with clients, that's what we found, um, the substantially all, uh, you could certainly qualify doing that if you're ready to do everything, which typically means the property is located close by to you and you're ready to get your hands, you know, dirty and 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 clean that clean in between stays and all that stuff. We usually don't see people wanting to do that. Uh, so what we do so that hundred hour test ends up making the most sense because you could still spend more than hundred hours and you can years come clean the properties in between the stays and between guests. You could have a handyman come and do some work on it. And this works particularly well if you're doing this from afar, because these days with technology, you could still spend 100 hours dealing with uh, tenants, coordinating with your cleaners, with your with your repair people, all that good stuff, and um, still meet this 100-hour test. 
Yeah, that's just, guys, just to put that into perspective, uh, I want to show you how impactful that can be. We have uh, some of our uh, members within Creating Generational Freedom this year getting up to 500000 in losses that they can use to shelter their clinical income um, just from two short-term rentals that they are materially participating in. And it's the end of the year. We have the fall cohort of Creating Generational Freedom. Greater than 75% of our members are trying to lock in a short-term rental before the end of the year. You see this all the time. Uh, uh, Tom, you guys have a short-term rental tax course also, which I'm sure a lot of people are really interested in it towards the end of the year because it's so much easier to hit that 100-hour material participation test and really make sure you're spending less uh, more time than anybody else um, around close to the end of the year. Can we talk a little bit about bonus depreciation and some the numbers, how this actually yeah. works for like a property so that people can understand, um, you know, how much of an impact it can have? Yeah, yeah. So um, what really made this stuff really powerful over the last five years or so has been bonus depreciation. And Bonus depreciation, what that allows you to do, it allows you to complete. So, okay. so when you buy a rental property, let's just say it's a short-term rental, for example, short-term rentals are typically depreciated over 39 years. So what that means is uh, you buy the property, you're going to have to break out land. Land is never depreciated. And for the sake of this example, I'm just going to assume that land is 20%. Land values typically be derived using the property tax card or independent third-party appraisal. But again, 20% for the sake of this example. Um and let's, so let's say you bought a $500,000 property. I'll keep that in the middle of the road there. That means $400,000 of it is going to be depreciable because again, 20% goes to the land. That's 100,000. That's not depreciated. Now you use $400,000. Well, if you didn't use bonus depreciation, uh, you typically get a depreciation expense of around $10,000 give, uh, give or take per year over 39 years. And uh, just to clarify on depreciation, uh, it's non-cash. So what that means is that on your profit and loss statement, you're going to have your income. Uh, let's just say you had $10,000 of rental income, for example. Now let's just say you had $6,000 of hard expenses. Um, and these are expenses like utilities, maintenance, repairs, uh, maybe accounting and legal fees, maybe you pay commissions to, uh, to a leasing agent, whatever the case is, all these fees. And uh, that would leave you with about $4,000 of cash flow. And in most other businesses, you're going to pay taxes on that $4,000. Now we're going to enter this depreciation expense, which is non-cash. And let's just say you have $5,000 just for this illustration here. Well, that's going to leave you with a loss of around $1,000, um, which means that, A, you didn't pay tax on your rental income. Yay, that's what we were talking about before. With That's that's available to everybody in the tax code. Yeah. But now the question is, well, what happens to this $1,000 loss? Well, if you're going to be using the short-term rental loophole or reps, this loss will be non-passive and can offset your active income. But $1,000 loss isn't that great, right? So how do you really increase this loss? Well, that's where bonus depreciation comes in. And bonus depreciation allows you to depreciate assets with a class life of 20, of, uh, excuse me, 20 years or less. Um, and usually you'll be able to break apart your 39-year property or your 27-and-a-half-year property in the case of like long-term residential um, by doing a cost segregation study. Long story short, uh, engineer comes to your property and they break down the components. They give you a survey. They give you a report saying your property breaks down to 39 years. Here's the portion that's 39. Here's the portion that's uh, five, seven, and 15 years. And you can bonus depreciate that five, seven, and 15 year property. Now the question always becomes, well, how much can I expect? How much can I expect to fall in that five, uh, seven, 15 year bucket? So this is going to be a range. This range is based off of just the experience we've seen over the last five years working with several cost segregation companies. Usually it's somewhere between 20 uh, to 30%. And usually kind of somewhere in the middle of the realm around 25% is usually what we see. Um, so again, taking it back to our example, we have that $400,000 property. Uh, we're going to take uh, 25%. And that's going to be $100,000. So $100,000 is going to be reallocated to this 5, 7, and 15-year property, which is going to be eligible for bonus depreciation. And this year in 2022, um, it is 100% uh, bonus depreciation. So you're going to receive a depreciation of expense of $100,000. So let's just take it back to the example. Before, you had $10,000 of rental income, and this is possible to happen. Um, and then you have all your expenses, and you have this big, massive $100,000 depreciation expense. Well, that's going to put you at a loss. And let's just say, for the sake, sake of this example, put you at a $105,000 loss because you have some other expenses in there. Well, now this $105,000 can offset your income. And this is really where stuff gets powerful. Yeah. So let's just say you were making $200,000. Well, now all of a sudden, you're only going to pay tax on, what's that? 
uh, $95,000. So that, that's, that can cut it down a lot. Um, now let's, let's just say you're at the 37% tax bracket to give it a number. And that's usually when you're making, if you're married a little over five fifty or so it's, I forgot the exact number, but yeah, around that. I think um, it's shifting for 2023 also, right? The numbers are going up. Yeah. Inflation, they're pushing those numbers up. Um, we just got the report in recently. Um, so if you're in the 37% tax bracket, that $105,000 is going to be worth at the federal tax uh, bracket. It's going to be worth $30,850 in tax savings. I mean, that's substantial, right? Um, that's it's almost 40 grand uh, that can go towards a down payment in a house. It can be yeah. used to buy a new vehicle or you know, almost a new vehicle in some cases. So it, it, it's a lot of money um, and it's really powerful. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of our members like using the 10% down home loan product, like the second home loan product. And so essentially whatever their down payment on the property is, is, very close to, or sometimes, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's similar to what they're pulling out in terms of post-tax dollars saved, which is where it's almost like you get infinite returns and you're recycling your money and using the same pot of money over and over again to keep scaling. Um, Tom, we talked about this a little bit earlier. We talked about material participation. And so there are lots of questions about what qualifies for material participation, especially for short-term rentals, right? Because a lot of people are trying to lock it in within the next month. Uh, the biggest question is about acquisition hours, right? Not not investor hours where you're researching the market, where where you've actually picked a property, you put an offer in, you're talking to your lender, you know, you're getting all the paperwork done, um, trying to form an LLC. Does all of that qualify for material participation hours for a short term rental? Right. So that's that's a good question. So it's a bit ambig- ambiguous. Uh, there's no clear, bright line test under the tax code that kind of uh, defines that. But based on our experience reviewing tax court cases and, and you know everything we've done. Uh, we we look at it as once the property is under contract, uh, and if assuming you're going to be self managing it, um, the time you spend, you know, uh, getting it under acquisition and walking the property, inspecting it, you know, dealing with the lenders, doing all the due diligence you need to do to get the to buy the property, that will count as material participation. So um, that that assumes though you're self managing. If you're not self managing, that will likely be categorized as investor level hours by the IRS. So you okay. have to be self managing to make those hours really can't make messages. If you're interested in learning how to invest in long-term and short-term rentals the right way, so you can accelerate to financial independence with the support of mentorship, community, and vetted investor agents and strong markets across the country, then get on the waitlist for the next cohort of Creating Generational Freedom at www.generationalwealthmd.com. You don't have to learn from decades of costly mistakes by yourself. The program is only open for enrollment in the spring and fall each year. In the last six months alone, our members have acquired over $60 million of real estate. And more importantly, they're living life and practicing medicine on their terms. You don't have to do it alone. And then what about when you have cleaners and you have a cleaning crew? Now, do your your 100 hours and more than anyone else, does that have to be, um, you know, uh, is it compared to every individual in that team? And this is true for a a general contractor who brings his crew in versus every, like, you know, for the entire team versus every individual in that team. How do you compare those hours? So it's uh, per individual. Um, So we did a lot of research on this to confirm that is indeed per individual, not per company. Um, so that means if you hired a cleaning crew and they had three cleaners and cleaner A spent 25 hours and cleaner B spent 54 hours, well, then each one of those is weighed against your 100 hours. Not It's not aggregated. So it's not added together. Um, so you can you know, theoretically cycle out cleaners and and make sure they're all below those thresholds and you'll be you'll be in good shape. That's awesome, because um, especially for those who are doing rehabs or who have cleaning crews come in, it's really good to know that um, if they're especially if they're really close in, in terms of the hours that they're um, calculating. Perfect. Um, in terms of losses, Tom, uh, and a lot of our members do this, they, they acquire and I think someone, uh, some of them on these on this call also are in a similar situation. They're acquiring multiple short term rentals that are luxury short term rentals. So um, can we talk about is there like a point at which you're capped in terms of how much you can take in terms of losses after which it starts getting carried forward? Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great question. So there's something called the excess business loss limitation. So what the excess business loss limitations do is they limit the amount of losses you can take against non-business income. So in other words, like W-2 or income from a job or anything that's not business income. So uh, I believe that's around $524,000 in 2022. So as if you're married and it's about half that if you're single. 
So basically, if you were to buy many luxury short-term rentals, let's just say you had a $700,000 loss, which honestly is not too far, not too out of the realm of possibility. Well, you would only be able to take uh, $524,000, give or take, this year in 2022. The rest of it would be carried forward into uh, the next year as a net operating loss. And once a net operating loss, it can offset your income the following year. Uh, up to 80% of your net income. So it, 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 that's the limit in any given year for, for your current year loss is going to be that $524,000 number that's indexed for inflation. And then um, the the excess amount just gets carried forward to the following year. And so even if you haven't maturely participated in that short-term rental in the following year, because it's carried as a net operating loss, those are like active losses that are different from passive losses and they will shelter your clinical income. Right, right. Because it was generated... Um, so net operating losses are losses from an active trader business, whereas passive losses from non-passive. So because it was generated as a pass, excuse me, a non-passive loss in the year um, that the loss is generated, it's the NOL is going to be non-passive moving forward. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's just amazing. And that's true for even the passive losses we've been talking about before. And in, in, you know, in those situations where you have rentals, where you may be generating paper losses from your rental that, um, you know, uh, that you're that are in excess of your cash flow, they will still get carried forward into into the into future years, you never lose it. So you always serve by maximizing, you know, just making sure you're recording and logging everything and taking all the losses you can. Tom, um, just a little bit of a diversion, but in terms of passive losses that you accrue over time, because you've owned real estate, right, just be, and because of depreciation, when can we talk about the scenarios when those losses are actually released, and they become active? I think we, we yeah. talk, talked about a couple of them before. Yeah. So um, there's so there's a handful of ways that losses become non-passive. And I'm just going to real estate professional status, short-term rentals. We just went through those. The special loss allowance is the other one. Now, what happens to these losses once they're suspended? Um, once they're suspended, they will be unlocked, quote unquote, when you have a net positive rental income, for example. So if you have rental yeah. income or, or income from other passive activities, like maybe a passive business that you might have an interest in, those losses will offset that income so that they can be used in future years to make sure that you continually don't pay taxes on that passive income. Uh, they will also be unlocked when you sell an activity. So when you sell a property, those losses that are associated with that property um, will be unlocked and will offset the capital gain from that activity first, including depreciation recapture. Um, and then it'll offset any other passive income you may have for the year if you have any. If you don't have any great... If there's anything remaining after that, well, then it will offset your non-passive income. However, I, I will state this, that in my experience over the last you know, five or six years doing this, you know, we've seen a, a tremendous run up in the market. Um, and most of the time, uh, the clients that we've been working with haven't had any excess losses after that. So meaning what yeah. happens, they sell the property, they have a very large capital gain in yeah. many cases, and those losses get unlocked, offset the capital gain, and there's just not enough losses left over to offset their non-passive income. So while it does kind of work that way, you know, it, that's, you know, I, yeah, theoretically how it works in practice, um, at least in the market we've seen over the last 10 years or so, you don't actually see people taking those losses against their non-passive income in many cases. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's, it just goes to highlight the fact that because these all these losses are carried forward, you really want to optimize your accounting, make sure you, you tap into all the benefits that are afforded to you. Um, just because in the end, when you're minimizing your capital gains, you're, you know, overall increasing the ROI for yourself. So it's always good to work with a, um, a real estate savvy uh, CPA. I've seen some of our members come in where they haven't been taking depreciation or they haven't been carrying forward losses. And, you know, the IRS, it's mandatory for you to take depreciation. So they're going to factor all of that in. You're going to have a recapture. Um, and, you know, so ideally you want to be working with someone who knows what they're doing because um, a lot of errors can happen along the way. So going back to short-term rentals, um, Tom, um, the, another question we get is, is, suppose someone runs a property as a short-term rental this year, what happens if the following year they want to convert it? A lot of times they want to convert it to a midterm rental. There's also the possibility they want to convert it to a long-term rental and that's their exit strategy. How does that work if they've taken bonus depreciation in year one? Yeah. So um, I'll give you the theory and then I'll give you a kind of the practical answer. Okay. So the, it, theoretically you can, it, so the way short-term rental uh, work, it's an, it's an annual test, meaning, you know, the seven days or less that's measured on an annual basis, whether or not you materially participated is measured on an annual basis. So if you were to 
have a short-term rental in 2022, for example, you were to materially participate. Now the following year, it happens to have an average stay of eight days and you're not providing substantial services. Well, then it's going to be a rental activity by the definition of the tax code. And it would be passive unless you're a real estate professional. Um, same goes if you were to, um, you turn to a primary residence the following year, uh, it would be your primary residence. You don't recapture any of the, the, the depreciations you took in, in 2022 in that first year, just because it becomes a long-term rental or because it becomes say a primary residence, for example. Um, so you would only have to recapture that depreciation when you ultimately sell the property. So that's usually not an issue. And that's kind of the by the book rules, right? Um, now, the IRS, no, the reason why Section 469 was put into place way back in the 80s was to prevent people from taking losses from their rental activities who were not, you know, that, that was the reason why it was put in place. And the IRS knows that people take advantage of these. So what they do is they try to look for ways and holes in your story and other areas of the task that they might be able to use to break your story, if you will, if you were under audit. And um, the way they might do that is a handful of ways. Like, for example, say you were to rent out a property towards the end of the year, we're going to recommend that you have as many stays of seven days or less, or as many guests stay at the property, and you're under that seven-day threshold, um, as possible to really substantiate your position and make it a legitimate business activity, and not just something to use this, just, just to use the tax benefits. Because <clears throat> under the tax code, uh, there's a section where the IRS says, um, Basically, if you're doing this stuff just to get around the passive activity losses, they can disallow it. So you want to avoid painting that picture. Um, so you want to have as many stays throughout the year as possible. And then ideally, if, if you're not using it through the majority of, of the year and you're just placing it, your property in the service towards the end of the year, you're most likely going to want to rent it out for as a short-term rental for some period of time the following year to, again, show to paint that picture. Because- you know, the biggest concern is is that, you know, sure, theoretically on paper, those are the rules, but the IRS could come in and kind of botch your situation. But to answer your question from before, if you were to do that, um, you would not be recapturing any of that depreciation. You still capture the benefits in, in the first year. Does it place them at an increased risk for audit or, um, or you know, so if, so if they were to do what you're suggesting is that they run it as a short-term rental for as long as they can, even into the following year before they make that transition into exactly. midterm or long-term. Exactly. Perfect. You're just, it just runs the risk that under audit, the IRS could find some kind of hole in your story to disallow it. And the more, the, the, the more it appears that you're running a short-term rental business and it's not just for the tax benefits, the stronger your position is and the less risk that your position is going to carry. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I'm going to get into some some of the questions I pulled from uh, our members uh, before, Tom. So they, this may not have as much flow, but a lot of people are acquiring short-term rentals. And um, if they're already furnished or if they intend to do rehabs on those properties before placing them in service, is there a way that they can optimize, uh, you know, uh, their their tax savings um, by you know timing the rehab in terms of de minimis safe harbor, uh, right. being it, the ability to use that if they place it in service first and then do the rehab later? What how does furniture work when it's already a furnished, um, you know, short term rental? Can they expense those things out? All right. So furniture. So, okay. So if you buy a property that's a short-term rental already or built to be a short-term rental or was previously a short-term rental and it comes with all the furniture, well, furniture is five-year property. So that would be broken out in a cost segregation study and eligible for bonus depreciation. Now, if you're going to actually furnish the property yourself, anything you do before the property is placed in the service, which is typically going to be the date that it's available for rent. So it's ready to go. Someone could come like rent it out today and live in it. Cool. Um, uh, and it's listed for rent. So that's the place and service date. Anything you do before that date um, is going to be capitalized to the property. Um, and so that would mean that if you were to buy property today um, and buy, you know, furnish it today, you go to Ikea, buy all the furniture, all that good stuff, um, that's going to be capitalized and it's going to become five-year property that could be depreciated. Okay. Albeit bonus depreciated. So that's good news, uh, but it's going to be uh, capitalized and depreciated nonetheless. Now let's say that you bought the property, you got it rent ready, and you know you listed it for rent, and then you bought the furniture. Well, now that because the property is already placed in the service, you can start using something that's called the, the minimum safe harbor, which you mentioned, and that means that 
any basically expenses with an invoice line item of $2,500 or less can be expensed immediately that year. That means it doesn't have to be capitalized, doesn't have to be depreciated, which is more optimal because uh, you get to avoid depreciation recapture and you don't have to worry about longer time horizons maybe on the property. But so let's just say the furniture, let's say you put a couch for, uh, I don't know, let's call it 2400 bucks just for sake of uh, example. Um, that's below 2500 So you'd be able to expense that couch immediately this year, not have to depreciate it. And uh, it's just an expense. And that, again, an expense is better than having to capitalize to depreciate it because you get to avoid depreciation recapture later on down the line. Awesome. Um, and that, that's good to know. For, I mean, at least from a planning point of view for people. Um, Tom, let, let's talk about um, bonus depreciation for a business vehicle. Uh, if you purchase right. it in 2022, because a lot of people end of the year, they're trying to get, get something. Um, so how does it work? Um, what is the criteria that needs to be met for them to be able to, you know, um, put it, uh, purchase it for their business, use it and bonus depreciate it 100%. Okay. So uh, there's a few requirements. So the first thing is the vehicle must be used more than 50% for business. um, And that's going to open it. That's going to, that's going to allow you to start using stuff like bonus depreciation. That's the first requirement. Um, Secondly, the vehicle has to have a gross vehicle weight rating of 6,000 pounds or more. That's typically heavy. um, It's typically full-size SUVs and pickup trucks, things of that nature. So um, once you do that. Many vans included. (laughs) Many, yeah, certain minivans for for sure, for sure can be included in that. So, um, okay, so where I was going, okay. So basically you do those things and you're able to bonus depreciate the business usage. Now there's a special strategy around year end that people like to use. And that is they will uh, buy the vehicle maybe in November or December of the year and use it exclusively for business. Meaning they don't drive it personally at all. And um I think I might be lagging in here for a second. So I'm just going to turn off my video just for one second to get through this and then I'll get back on it. So um, the, uh, okay. So they buy towards the end of the year. They use it exclusively for business purposes. Now they say get a hundred percent business usage. So now the vehicle is used a hundred percent for business. And now they can use a hundred percent bonus depreciation to depreciate those. So uh, long story short, that's, uh, that's how it works. Again, just to recap, you're using the vehicle more than 50% for business. Ideally, you're purchasing it towards year end and using it exclusively for business. And then uh, you're using 100% bonus depreciation on it as long as it has that app, as long as it has the, the gross vehicle weight rating of 6,000 pounds or more. Uh, that's that, Those are the requirements. Awesome. Now, uh, Tom, does it need to be in the business name or can it be in your personal name and can it be financed? Yes, that's a good question. So um, we almost always suggest it being on your personal name. And that's just because it causes, it's a lot easier to do that um, as a lot less re- regulations around that. Um, and uh, it's just it's just better because if it's in your business name and you use it personally, you could cause some tax issues if you do that. So we generally recommend avoiding doing that. Um, as for it being financed, yes, as long as you're buying the vehicle and you're taking ownership of it and not leasing it, doesn't matter what, whether you buy it all cash or you buy it with a loan, um, you could still use that depreciation. So if it's financed, you still get 100% bonus depreciation in the year that it's placed in service. Right, right, right. So yeah. And, Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Tom. I was going to say, just for example, if you bought like a, a $4,500 Ford F-150, um, and use it exclusively for business, you're able to deduct that entire $45,000. Yeah. So basically long story short, on your tax return, it's going to be associated with that business activity. And, and that's pretty much how that it'll just be deducted against that business's income. Um, Tom, this is a question I get a lot. People trying to invest in real estate through their self-directed IRAs or their 401s. And I just wanted to touch upon that a little bit. So how does it work when you're buying an individual property through your self-directed IRA in terms of taxes, tax implications versus a 401? And how does it work with the syndication? All right. So it kind of works very similar in both scenarios with the syndication or the direct uh, property yourself. So through an IRA, there's something called uh, UDFI unrelated debt financed income. And that's going to be the income that's attributable to the debt financing. And the the, the simplest way I could illustrate this is let's just say you had $10,000 in rental income, like that number, nice and nice and round. And let's just say you had 75% uh, LTV. So you got, you know, you put 25 down and you took 75 on debt. 
Well, basically 75% of that or 7,500 would be considered uh, unrelated debt finance income or UDFI. Now, UDFI is subject to UBIT, the unrelated business income tax. Uh, this is a mouthful of terminology here um, and for income above 1,000. So if you have, uh, in that example, uh, $6,500 of uh, taxable rental income, you're going to pay tax the trust tax rates through your IRA and your IRA pays that taxes. Now, what I will say is that we usually don't see many taxpayers paying UDFI um, throughout the life of the property. Usually you see UDFI come in during the sale. And in my experience, it's really only knocked down the gain, the the um, ROI maybe by one to three percent. It's not usually substantial through the IRA. Um, but it, it is something to be aware of. It's not completely tax-free thanks to that UDFI. Um, and uh, you do have to file Form 990T with that. So you have to make sure your accountant uh, files that form or is aware of the rules around filing that form because you don't always have to file it. But uh, long story short, you want to make sure that you, you're you're crossing that, that, that off your checklist. Um, when it comes to 401ks, whether it be a self-directed 401k or a solo 401k, uh, solo 401ks are not subject to UDFI on rental properties. So you don't have to pay that tax. So in other words, you know, you invest in the rental property directly or through the syndicate um, in your 401k, you're generally not going to have to pay that UDFI tax. And it's the preferred vehicle, preferred retirement vehicle for investing in real estate if you can have access to one. Um, now, the the tax, um, is that only on cash flow or is it on the entire income that's produced by the property? Um, so it's on the net rental income. So usually you're going to have you're going to have your rental income, then you're going to have your expenses and depreciations usually in there. And that's the, the net amounts, what you're going to have to pay taxes on. And if it if you do end up having gains at the uh, if you do if you sell the property towards the end. So 75 percent of the gains are not subject to additional taxes. Well, so, so the way it works is over the course of your loan, over the course of the property, the loan is going to be, um, what is the principal pay down, right? You're going to start paying down some of the principal and that there's an equation mm. complicated, you know, it's going to not be exactly 70, 75% give or take is what's going to be subject to tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually it's, 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 I'm trying to find, I, it's, it's really hard to explain it because the calculations. Is oh, wrong. okay. Because when I looked at it and it said UBIT taxes are around 37% after a certain number, it seems like a large amount considering that, you know, at, at sale, the gain, 75% of the gains may be subject to that 37% tax. But what I'm realizing is that that's not necessarily how it plays out. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't really play out like that. It's usually not that bad. And it's, it's tax the trust tax rates and the trust tax rates they they go up to 37% really quick. I yeah. think it's around 13,000. Yeah, something like that. Year. Um, so that's just something you have to keep in mind. But also uh, the the, acqui- the UDFI, the, or excuse me, the acquisition indebtedness uh, is usually not going to be at 75% when you're selling the property. So it's not that, it's usually not going to be that high. Um, um, how can people uh, who need help with uh, real estate tax planning work with you uh, on an individual level? So do you want to talk about this, Tom? I know you guys have, uh, you know, the tax planning services, the tax courses. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I'll I'll kind of break that down. Um, so the way it works is we we offer one on one comprehensive tax planning um, to clients. So basically, if you wanted to work with an advisor one on one, we're going to take a look at what your situation looks like today. So what your properties are, what your income is, and as well as what your goals are over the next handful of years. And we're going to put together a tax plan for you uh, that basically outlines a number of strategies that you can use to reduce taxes. We're going to walk you through what the tax, uh, you know, what each strategy we're recommending is, how it applies to your situation, uh, what benefits you get by using from using it, and then ultimately what action steps you need to take. So that is one way to work with us, that individual uh, tax plan that usually starts at around $4,500. So that's kind of one way. Uh, Then we have courses courses that basically allow you to educate yourself on this. And uh, you could even, we've had people go and use this course with their CPAs and their tax uh, professionals to actually implement it into their tax returns. So uh, for example, we have the short-term rental tax course. 
that literally breaks down everything you need to know about short-term rentals uh, to use the short-term rental loophole from A to Z breaks everything down. Uh, then we have a, a course called Tax Strategy Foundation, which I believe Param actually went through a version of this. And there we go through the real estate professional status from A to Z. We go through short-term rentals from A to Z. We go through optimizing your tax position through safe harbors, like the, like the de minimis safe harbor and planning for repairs and maintenance. We go through exit strategies, like using cost segregations as an exit strategy, um, 1031 exchanges, paying your children, uh, entity structuring. We literally go through... It's called Tax Strategy Foundation because we literally go through everything from A to Z you need to know as a, as a real estate investor to reduce taxes. So that's kind of the two ways we help people on, uh, on tax planning. We have uh, the, the comprehensive one-on-one, then we have the courses. And then finally, and this is more w- along with the courses, we have a community Tax Smart Insiders where we host four live Q&As per month, kind of like this, where it's answering a lot of questions. And then uh, also a forum where you could you can ask questions and we have a backlog, we have like a, a an archive of videos, an archive of uh, articles of tax planning. So that's kind of in a nutshell how it all works. So on so many levels, right? Whatever works for you guys, you know, you have an option that you can pick from. I Like Tom said, and I've, I've said before, I took the course and I use it all the time throughout the year to help me plan. And then I use it when I, you know, go and um, file taxes also. Um, I have put a link in on Facebook and I'm going to send a link out along with, uh, with the replay to this. To all of you, you can use that to get, um, you know, access uh, Tom and Brandon, the, the real estate CPAs website and you can pick what makes the most sense for you and um, they actually gave uh, the generational wealth md community a discount code where it's actually over 50 percent tom i put it in there and it's like um it's it's yeah yeah so you get like a significant discount uh on any of the tax courses so um so you guys just make sure you uh you use that figure out what makes the most sense for you but it seems like for any level at any point where you are, if you're just getting started and you may just have questions periodically, you have the Tax Smart Insider, you have the tax courses if you really want to, um, you know, just get hardcore and learn all of the stuff, which I think is super helpful because um, you don't know what you don't know. And, and sometimes, you know, even to present it to your CP, you really need to know what you could be taking advantage of. So that's there. And then you have the tax planning um, and tax planning and tax filing are two different things. And uh, planning is, is really, really important. So yeah, I love what you guys are doing, Tom. You know, I'm sure everybody got a ton of value from this. And uh, I'm glad we talked about all the different ways that you can help our community, real estate investors, and you work with a lot of positions. I know that um, a lot of people who are LPs and syndications, um, you know, people who are starting short-term rentals, long-term rentals, or you know, have really large portfolios. So, whatever stage you're at, I'm sure you can really benefit from uh, from their assistance and their expertise. Thank you for having me. It was an honor to be here. Happy, happy to uh, to be of help. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Tom.